Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Welcome once more to Christ Church. My name is Michael, and I have the joy of being part of the team, part of the team around here. And I'm looking forward to today and the next few weeks as we get into the middle of the series we've been in on the book of Romans. Now, we're calling this thing, as you can see, the transforming power of God's faithfulness. And the reason we chose this as a description of this book is because, first of all, we believe what this book is about is God faithfully saving us. That God didn't just make us and then when we made a mess of everything, drop us. No, he's faithful to save us. And he didn't just say, I might do it this way or I might do it that way, but that there was a consistent plan from the beginning by which he brings salvation to you and I. And that's what we think Romans is about. But we didn't just want it, you know, to call it God's faithfulness or even just the general power of God's faithfulness, but the transforming power of God's faithfulness. Because also in this book of Romans is the truth that this actual message changes you. It changes you from the core and it turns you into a different kind of person. And so we hope that you've been seeing some of those types of things take place as we've studied this book. And for any of you who are uh, really kind of thinking about or maybe you're close to deciding or have decided on this first decision to become a part of this, to say yes to Jesus for the first time, uh, so if, if you're there or close to there, we want to let you know about an opportunity that you're going to have here in a couple weeks. We're going to do a big splash Sunday. Now, that, what that means for us here, if, if you're new or if you're a guest with us, is Big Splash are some events that we've done where we get together and we do baptisms. We provide an opportunity for people to go public and to confirm their decision to believe in Jesus by being baptized. Uh, we, of course, do this and celebrate this almost every week, but these are moments when we try to just do it up big and it becomes the focus of things. And normally we'll do this uh, like on a different event outside of Sunday. This is the first time when we've done a Big Splash Sunday. So on February 14th, we figured that was an appropriate date to describe the coming together of you and and God, you and Jesus. Uh, We're going to have that. So if you're interested in that, if you know you want to do that, or if if you're thinking about it, come talk to us. If you know for sure, you can RSVP online or at our prayer center out there in the lobby, or you can just show up that day. And if you're like, all right, this is it, then just walk up here. We'll throw you in the water. We'll we'll towel you off. We'll give you some clothes to wear afterwards. Uh, We just want to provide opportunities for you to say yes. Yes to this message of grace that we've been talking about. Let me pray once more, and then uh, we'll talk about the text that we're uncovering today. Uh, Father God, as we approach Romans 5, I just, I just echo precisely what Elijah prayed, that we would come to see the nature of redemption, that we would see how you've saved us, that each of us in the room who are admittedly at different degrees of faith, some of us trust you completely, some of us don't, some of us kind of do, some of us not at all, And and wherever we are, Lord, we pray that you would help us as we open up this particular passage and look at Paul trying to summarize some things he's been trying to get across, that we we would take it to mind and we would take it to heart, and that through the truth in this text and through you as our very present teacher... That, uh, that you'd be able to kind of crack through and, and get a hold of us and help us understand more deeply that, uh, that you have saved us in certain ways and that uh, we can live in grace because of what you've accomplished on our behalf. So thank you for today, and we pray that you bless our time uh, together. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but uh, the, there's something about Romans, this book we're studying, that kind of requires a second look. You know what I mean? 
Like you read a text or you hear a message and you're like, I, I, gotta, I think I get it, but I got to look at this again, you know? There's something about what Paul writes here and the way in which he presents what he's trying to say that you, you know the first time you read it, you don't get everything. So you want to you keep, keep peering into it. It's kind of like, you remember back in the 90s, and I could go anywhere from here, right? You remember back in the 90s, those magic eye pictures? You know what I'm talking about? I'm going to throw one up on the screen so you remember this. These were like all over the place. I'm not exactly sure why. And it was like, hey, look closely and you'll see a dolphin jumping out of the water. You know what I mean? And like some of you looked at these probably for a long time and thought, this is a joke. There is nothing there. But you get the basic idea. If you've never seen one of these before, I pity you because you didn't grow up in the 90s. But also, like, you, the idea is you just look at this and then somehow there's this 3D image that kind of pops out at you. So that's all you need to know about the 90s. And that's kind of what I think, how I think Romans works. That the more you look at, there's nothing in that picture, by the way. So don't, I don't think anyway. Don't, you don't have to try to find it. No dolphin. Nothing. You look at Romans and you're like, all right, if I, I, I need to keep looking at this. And I think it's true. If you keep looking at this, there is truth that will reach out and, and, and grab hold of you. I think Paul knows this, which is why at different points in the letter he pauses his unfolding argument. He, pause, he pushes pause on the logic button. Okay, I'm not going to keep developing my case. I'm going to try to summarize what I've been saying so far. There's times when he repeats the truth he's been arguing for just so that it will sink in a little bit. And that's what today's passage does. So if you have your Bibles, turn them to Romans 5. If you have a device, tune it in there as well. Let me read to you from the first half of this chapter. I'm going to start in 5.1, first, first verse in the chapter. And I'm going to read about half of Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Here's what Paul writes. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, here's what's going on in this passage. It's sort of like summarizing in both directions. So if you look at that and you're like, man, there seems like there's a lot in there. That, that's, that, you're right. You, you are correct. And here's why. Because Paul's trying to summarize everything he said in chapters 1 through 4, and he's given us a preview of some of the things he's going to talk about in chapters 5 through 8. Just to give you an overview of the first half of this book, in chapters 1 through 4, Paul is explaining, here is how it works. Here is how you're saved. Not like this, but like this. And here's how that fits with what God always said. That's Romans 1 through 4. Then he switches gears in the second quarter of the book, 5 through 8, and starts exploring. Here's all of what this means for us. 
Here's some of the things that this looks like in your own life. And our text today is the hinge between the two. So it kind of points in both directions. And what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the part of this that summarizes what's been coming before, summarizes what Paul's been saying. So let me read to you again the first couple of verses. And I want you to notice this is kind of just what Mark preached the last couple weeks. And that's true because it's what the text said. Here's what Paul says to start. Once more, therefore, since we have been justified, there's that word again, through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Now, if you've been tracking along, maybe you're looking at Paul going, isn't that what he just got through saying? Paul, why, why repeat yourself here? And if Paul were here, I think what he would say is, yeah, and here's the reason. Because I want it to sink down from your head to your heart. Because we all know that there's a difference between seeing that something is true and feeling that truth in your bones. Between understanding what somebody is saying and, re- and really getting it. And what we got to do, Paul would say, is move from, I agree that this is true, to yes, and now this is going to define me. I heard uh, one of my favorite preachers, Tim Keller, who has really helped me think, I hope, well through this passage and what Paul's talking about in here. And In one of the sermons, he talks about how early in his ministry, there was a family that called him up on a Monday or Tuesday and said, uh, you know, our teenage daughter's kind of just kind of seems somewhat depressed. Would you meet with her? And he's like, sure, absolutely. So the family came by and, uh, you know, they got there and and the girl came in, in, in the office and he said, tell me what's going on. And the girl explained well, like everything was fine, I liked this boy, and then I find out that he didn't like me back, and then I find out none of the boys in my class like me. And Keller's like, oh, okay, I see what we're dealing with. Now, he's not trying to make fun of her, our problems are real to us when they're real to us, right? But it just so happened that he had just preached a sermon that weekend before about how God loves us and how his love defines us and how his love tells us who we are and all these things. And uh, he said to her, he said, well, did you happen, did you, were, were you here on Sunday? And she said, yeah. And he said, well, did you, what did you catch from the message? And she said it back to him perfectly. And then he's like, well, does that help with your situation? And she's like, well, I guess, yeah, but, but really, I'm sad because the boys don't like me. Like, what are you not getting about this, you know? And in that moment, he realized, like, the problem is not that she doesn't grasp the concept. The problem is that she's not allowing it to, to, to come down into and to center her identity, It's been said that the longest distance in the world is the 15 inches from your head to your heart. I think Paul knows this, and he's not willing to leave the truth up here. So taking my cues from Paul, what I want to do this morning is just kind of linger in this truth a little bit longer. I want to build on what Mark talked about last week in particular. Last week, he talked about the objective truth. And what I mean by that is it's true whether you feel it or not. And I want you to move beyond objective understanding to I want you to be personally aware of it. So like something is objectively true that there's, you know, a table in front of me. And I become personally aware of it when I stub my toe on on the core, on, on the leg. You know what I mean? So it's not that I want you to stub your toe on the gospel, but I want to take this objective truth. And remember what he said. The truth is, and this is Paul in Romans 3 and 4, that God justifies us. That he declares us righteous. He gives us a new status before him. He declares us acquitted or pardoned, not on the basis of our good behavior, but on the basis of his mercy and grace. On the sole only basis of Jesus' death as the perfect sacrifice that atones for our sin. That's objectively true, whether we feel it or not. And what we want to do today is try to, try to push it down a little bit. 
try to go from, yes, I agree with that statement to, and now this will define me. Let me just tell you right up front that I think we just need to take two moves for this whole thing to work, for Romans to take root. In us, in our hearts, beyond just our heads, I think you just got to make two moves. And they begin with a choice, and they continue as you keep on choosing them. Here they are. I'm going to give you both right up front. Number one, let God's opinion of you define you. That's the first part of this. Let God's opinion of you define you. And then number two, let Christ's death define God's opinion of you. Yeah, that's the truth of the gospel. Let me, let me just let these sit here for a second. I want you to think about them. Let God's opinion of you define you. So your worth is determined by how he sees you. That's what this means. And then secondly, recognizing that he sees you through the cross. If you want to be a person who, who more than just goes through the motions spiritually, if you want to like understand for yourself why some people give themselves to the gospel and maybe even give their lives for the gospel, if you want to be a person like to your core who can have this, this sense of peace that starts now and lasts throughout eternity, if you want to understand why Jesus came into the world and what he means to do in your life, then you just start by choosing to believe both of these things. Again, both of them, not just one or the other. I think all our inner turmoil is connected to denial of one of these two truths. If you believe the second but not the first, if you believe that, that, that Christ's death defined God's opinion of you, but that God's opinion of you doesn't define you, so you have number two but, num- but not number one, you're like the girl in the story. You're going to come to church and you're going to hear the truth and you're going to go back into your world and it's not going to make any difference. If, on the other hand, you believe the opposite, if you believe, number one, that God's opinion of you defines you, but you don't know about number two, that, that Christ's death defined God's opinion of you, then you're probably well acquainted with guilt and shame and the feeling that you have to just do a little bit more to measure up. You may, be, have, you may have become the kind of person who, who tends to hide from people before they can really get to know you because you don't know what happens when you expose the core. Now, I don't want either of these tragedies for you, and I don't want them for me, so let's get to work. And we're still talking about justification And if we're going to understand Paul's words on this, we need to know something about the situation on the ground, real people in Rome that Paul is writing to. And basically what you have are two different groups with two sets of traditions that are trying to live together as the church. You've got Jewish Christians who have their traditions and their way of seeing things, and then you've got Gentile Christians and their traditions and their way of seeing things, and the two are trying to come together as one, and to make matters more complicated, for about five years, just before Paul wrote the letter, the Jewish Christians had to leave town. So the Gentile Christians just filled it for themselves, and they figured it out. Maybe they didn't know the Bible as well as them, but they learned it. Maybe they didn't know how to, how to do a church service, but they did it. And then, after a while, the Jewish Christians were allowed to come back, a bunch of political stuff. They come back, and now you have these two groups trying to come together. The Jews are looking at them saying, Jewish Christians, hey, we're back, so you can go ahead and allow us to take back control of things. We got this. And the Gentile Christians are like, what do you mean you got this? Like, we're okay. And by the way, do y'all still have problems with bacon? Because like, since you've been gone, we've been putting it on everything. You know what I mean? And so you have these two groups, and they're trying to figure out how to live together. And in particular, they're asking the question, like, how do we know when you're right with God? How do, you, how do we know when, when, we're good, when you're good? The, the vertical dimension, how do I know I'm good with God? Because you're saying I have to do this, and you're saying I have to do this. How do I know when I'm right with God? And how do I know when you are? Or how do you know when I am? So there's a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension, and that's justification. Not just are you right with God, but how do you know? 
Like how can you, when you put your head on the pillow at night, go to sleep knowing all is well between you and the God who made you, between you and your judge? And Paul's answer, now and forevermore, is that by faith you are covered in Christ, by trusting that his death counts for your sin, by grace through faith, that's the formula, by grace through faith. It's not about whether you follow the Old Testament or some other set of rules. Maybe those will come in later, maybe they won't. Some of them will, some of them won't. But the point is that they're not the point. That that we're right with God because of what Jesus has done for us. Let me read to you once more the first and last portions of our text. He starts and he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Grace, faith. Now flip to the end of it. Verse 9. Since we have now been justified by what? By his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul's point is very clear from top to bottom. You're justified through Jesus. It's what he did for you that enables you to say, all is well. And maybe some of you are sitting in the room thinking, that's fine and good for all you religious people. I'm not one of you. I'm not into this stuff. Righteousness, justification, or maybe you're even a follower of Jesus, but you're like, I'm not really a fanatic. Maybe that's for the people who get way into it. I don't really think about this much. And I want to tell you as gently as I can, actually, I think you do. Justification is is not just a church thing. It's not just a religious thing. It's a human thing. It's hardwired into our hearts. Think about the ways we use the word justified. We talk about making a justified purchase. We talk about going on a justified, is that vacation really justified? We talk about taking a justified nap. It's my favorite kind of nap, you know what I mean? And in all these cases, what justified means is, have I like earned enough to merit this? Has enough been done? This is justified vacation. I don't care where they're going, how much they're spending. You should see how hard they've worked. It is justified to go do that. It is justified for you to sleep. You've been working your tail off. This is how we use the word justification. And if you, again, the question, have I done enough to earn this? And if you look closely, I think you'll quickly see that this applies to our lives as a whole. I mean, think about one of the iconic moments of American history when Rocky is about to fight Apollo Creed. (laughs) And you know what he says. He says, listen, I just want to go the distance with Creed because nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go the distance, if I can make it to the end, then I'll know I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. Remember that line? What's he saying? He's saying, I I, want to be something, mean something. I want my life to count. I want to be validated, worthy, accepted. I want to be justified. Maybe you think that's just fiction, and it's rocky. He's not exactly the paragon of psychological health. You know what I'm saying? It's not just fiction, though. It's successful people, unsuccessful, all the way in between. uh, You may recognize this name. There's a pretty well-known movie maker named Sidney Pollack. He died, it's, it's almost been a decade now, died back in 2007, Uh, But an article came out just before his death, and it was talking about how even though he was nearing the end, even though he was was getting older and he was very sick, he he couldn't stop working. His family pleaded with him, just stop, just come home like you're making it worse. We only have a little bit left, and we want to spend it with you. But he couldn't. Here's what the article says. It says, movie mogul Sidney Pollack says that although the grueling filmmaking process is wearing him down, 
He can't justify his existence if he stops. He explains in his own words, every time I finish a picture, I feel I've earned my stay for another year or so. It's not just successful people either. Uh, There's a lady, Elizabeth Wurzel, wrote a book called Prozac Nation about some of her own and many struggles with depression and anxiety. And she said in the book, you know, in a strange way, I had fallen in love with my depression. I loved it because I thought it was all that I had. I thought depression was the part of my character that made me worthwhile. I thought so little of myself, felt that I had such scant offerings to give to the world, that the one thing that justified my existence at all was my agony. There's so many ways we frame this up, about as many as there are people in the room. So many flavors of what the Bible calls justification by works. We don't usually say, I'm trying to justify my existence. Usually we say things like, I'm trying to fill the void. I want to feel like I'm someone. I want to matter. I want somebody to notice me. Often we'll just say, you know, one more and that'll be enough. There's an important word. One more book read, one more award won, one more friend, one more compliment, one more gift, one more closed deal, and and then I'll be fine. Then I'll be likable. Then I'll be secure. Then I'll be safe. Then people will be impressed. Then maybe God will like me. Then I'll be enough. A while back, I heard uh, Dana Hudson, one of our ministers on staff here, sharing her story. There's so many wonderful people here. And she gave me permission to share this. And she uh, is recently joined our staff after spending a career in the medical field. And she talked about how, um, and it was hard to, to admit this, but she talked about how basically her whole 20s and 30s, she just worked, like all the time. And, you know, we, we, you've heard these kind of stories before. This is the reality for many. But I thought some of the ways she described it now after the fact were, were pretty spot on. She said things like, I was fed by success. Doesn't seem like the big of a phrase, but think about it. Like what, what, what gave me sustenance was actually succeeding at something. And then she, towards the end of her, of her testimony, she said, no, the truth is, here's the truth of it. The truth is, I worked to feel important. That's this. See, I don't think the question is if you seek justification, but how. And I think we need to see how we seek. I need to see how I seek justification if I'm going to take the truth of Romans from here to here. And I want to go beneath the obvious. We've all said, you know, I work all the time, or I'm really busy, or, you know, I, I, I sometimes try to please people, or my life is about my kids, or I want to be successful, but I want to dig a little deeper. Why? Like, why do you want to be successful? Why do you work all the time? Why are you so busy? What are you pursuing? And like I said, I think that there's probably as many right answers as there are people in the room, and I don't pretend to have an exhaustive list, but I want to walk through some of what I think are common ones so that you can see them and just reflect on them together for a second. And, 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 that, and that maybe you can say, well, it's not that for me, but it is this. So I'm going to throw these up on there. I'm just going to give you five of them and just briefly talk through them. I think these are five big ones. Knowing, producing, earning, winning, or helping. For some of you, you try to feel like you're enough by knowledge. You just want to know stuff. Maybe it's knowledge about the Bible. You know, you hear somebody quote John 3.16 and you're like, yeah, but kid, do you know John 3.17? You know, God, aren't you proud of me? <laughs> For you, it may not be that. Maybe you just really, really, really like Jeopardy, like a lot, a lot, like too much, you know. Or when you play Trivial Pursuit, 
No, like it's, it's, it gets scary. Maybe it's your industry. You want to have all the answers. Or maybe you know more about college basketball than any non-athlete ever should. I don't know. But you, you want to know stuff, and that makes you feel like it's okay. You're okay. For others, it's producing. And probably not producing movies for most of us in here, but whatever it is, you need visible evidence of your effort. And if you don't have that, if you can't point to it and say, there's today, there's yesterday, there's the day before, here's tomorrow, then you feel dejected, maybe even worthless. Still for others, maybe for you, it's not producing so much as earning. And this is a tough one because I don't know if it's earning or having or both or what. For some of you, you just want stuff and that makes you feel like you're safe and secure. For others, though, it's not even just having stuff. It's not what it's about. So let me ask you this question, and this will only land for some, but for those who it lands with, this may be you. If you were to lose all your earning power, so you don't lose, like, being okay. You're still taken care of. So that's not what I'm talking about. But you yourself lose all your earning power. Could you still sleep well tonight? And if not, then this may be your justification path. For still others, it's winning. And I don't want to talk about this one for very long because it hits too close to home. But uh, maybe it's beating the odds. Maybe it's outshining your competition. Maybe it's, maybe it's actually like winning contests or games or sports or arguments. Maybe it's just you want to be the best. Because then if you're the best, like everything is okay. Surely, surely you matter if you're the best. And for still others, it's, it's helping. And it's not just that you like to help people. It's not just that you want to make an impact. It's that you need to know that other people's lives are better because you're here. You need to help other people to justify you being alive. Do you ever think to yourself, gosh, how many of us think this? You know, I could lose everything. My life could fall apart. But if my kids turn out okay, everything will be fine. Now, there's a part of that that's innocent and okay. They matter to us and they should. But when I look at my kids, I love them. But that's the way to, to put my psychological well-being on whether or not they turn out okay is a little too much pressure for them. And it's going to make it difficult for me to love them well. If, whether I realize it or not, I'm thinking, you know what, you better turn out good because then if everything else loses, it's okay because you're good. That's a lot, man. It's putting a lot on a kid, make you feel righteous. And yet we do it. So, like I said, those are just five. And I hope if that's not you, you're able to say it's not that, but it actually is this. What is your thing? How do you try to justify the oxygen you consume? What helps you sleep at night? And of course, this is the way most of the world works. This is critical. You gotta measure up. You gotta get the grades. You gotta pad the resume. You gotta be pretty enough. You gotta outshine the rest. And then I will like you or love you or choose you or hire you. And maybe that's why, because it's so normal in life, maybe that's why we often can't help taking that same mentality to God. We just assume he operates the same way. Many of you believe that if you read the Bible more and do more good and pray more and serve more and risk more, then maybe in the end it's finally going to be enough. You instinctively think that God's looking at you saying, would you just clean things up a little bit and then let's talk. God does not operate that way. And this is why Tim Keller says, you know, Christians aren't just people who repent of their sins. They're people who repent of their justifications. Paul's talking to church people. 
He's talking to people who have said, I don't want to sin. Like, I don't want to do wrong. And Paul says, great, that's first step. Second step is stop trying to use your behavior, your track record, as a way to earn your favor before God's presence, before his throne. Stop trying to justify yourself before God and each other by what you do. Notice the pattern of justification by works. I have to do enough good so that I maybe I'll be good enough so that, so that then maybe like God will like me. And Romans 5 tells us God does not operate that way. No, you matter because God loved you first. Look at the middle of this section, 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, justification by grace is exactly the opposite of justification by worth. Like, you've been declared righteous. You've been given a new status before God on the basis of unearned grace by nothing more than you saying, yes, I'll take what you're offering. Notice the pattern here. God accepts you because of Jesus' death on your behalf, and when you realize that you don't have to measure up, it actually changes you from the inside out. Like, you become whole, and then you find yourself doing good. See, it's not that God didn't make you to produce or earn or, or help or any of those things. He did. It's just the pattern's been reversed. God wants you to bear fruit, and you bear fruit by tending to the root, and the root is justification by grace. About a month ago when we started, we, we said Paul was very clear about the problem, and now you see he's equally concerned to clarify the solution. No joke and no exaggeration, the answer to the world's problems, all of yours included, begins, it starts by rejecting justification by works in whatever form it's found its way into your heart, by rejecting that way of living and thinking, and by falling into, not just leaning, but falling into the strong arms of justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so what do we do? I mean, stop trying to justify our existence either by earning God's favor or trying to measure up to some standard we have in our head or in our world. Realize once for all that Romans 5 applies to me. This is my story, your story. Decide to trust that his death is your atoning sacrifice, that Jesus has made you right with God, that he has done for you what you could never do for yourself. And if you already know this, just push it a little deeper. Push it a little deeper. Let me end where we begin. The only thing that you need to do, the only thing you must do to become a person who immediately experiences deep and lasting peace is, first of all, let God's opinion of you define you. It does not matter what anybody else thinks. Let God's opinion of you define you. And then, second, let Christ's death define God's opinion of you. Nothing else. Not your own track record, not your morality, not your activism. Christ's death. And one more thing to show you what this looks like, and then we'll be done. You know, one of my mottos in life is, when you're not sure if you've said it well, let Charlie Brown say it for you. <laughs> and um, you can learn a lot about life from this guy and his friends. And uh, if, if you, all you need to know about, the, if you don't know who the peanuts are, first of all, I need to talk to your parents. Secondly, uh, Linus is known for two things, his striped shirt and his blue blanket carries this blanket everywhere he goes. It's, he's the one who popularized the idea of a security blanket, right? And so he, if you, like, people try to take it from him. Sally, Snoopy, not going to happen. You can make fun of him, doesn't matter. But then there's this one time when he puts the blanket down. You've seen the scene even if you didn't notice it. 
It's in the Christmas special. It's aired every year for like 50 years. Charlie Brown's trying to figure out the meaning of Christmas, and he can't figure out, like, what's this all about? And then Linus walks up to him and says, well, I'll tell you the meaning of Christmas, Charlie Brown. And he walks over on that stage, and the light comes on. He starts telling the story of Jesus. You know this scene? What you may not have noticed, go back and watch it this week, what you may not have noticed is at the point when he says, fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy, he drops his blanket. At the very moment in this story, when he begins talking about the impact of Christ's entry into this world and the fact that it frees us from our fears, the blanket hits the floor. So what do we do with Romans 5? We drop our blanket once and for all and let our lives tell the story of grace. Would you stand and let's pray. Father God, we're grateful for today, and we pray that you would drive this truth home from our heads to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.